As we come now before the very Word of God, if you'd like to read with me, uh, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew in chapter 1. We'll be here again in Matthew, Matthew 1. And before we pray, before we read, I'm even getting ahead of myself, before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, we know that you alone are God. You are the Lord, and besides you there is no other. You're the Redeemer and the Holy One, and you have sent your word to accomplish your purpose. So, Lord, would you help us in this time to submit to you, to, to attend to these things now with eagerness, by your spirit, would you open our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and our hearts to believe. Guide us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the book of Matthew in chapter 1. I want to take up here a good number of verses, beginning in verse 18. We'll read through to the end of the chapter. So this is Matthew in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God. Now, I want us to focus today mainly upon just one verse, which is verse 21, if you're looking at your Bibles. We'll get to that in just a moment. But before we zoom in there, I want us to take a wider look at where we are in the Christmas scene at this point. So almost all of what we know about the events of the birth of Jesus in the Bible come from the Gospels. Specifically, two of the four Gospels talk about his birth, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. And Matthew and Luke, both of these writers, agree, of course, about the, these things, but their approach to the narrative of Jesus' birth comes from different directions. 
So Luke gives us the much longer account of the Christmas scene. Uh, most of the things that we're familiar with around Christmas come from Luke. And Luke gives a much greater emphasis upon the role of Mary in the birth of Jesus. In fact, in Luke, Joseph, in, in Luke's gospel, is, is virtually just a footnote he barely gets a mention here and there. But Matthew, where we are today, leans much harder into Joseph. Uh, Mary, of course, is not just a footnote here. Uh, she's still the mother of the Lord, after all. Uh, but it's just that we see in Matthew the birth of Jesus through Joseph's eyes. And by the time uh, Joseph is an integral part of the story, there have already been, before this, a series of events that have occurred, which we've seen recorded in, in Luke chapter 1. So before what we see here in Matthew, the angel Gabriel has already made two separate appearances to two different people. The angels already appeared to Zechariah. So you may know him already. Zechariah is the priest. Uh, his husband is Mary's uh, much older cousin, Elizabeth. And Zechariah, uh, his wife is barren and, I'll say delicately, aged, of advanced age. And, and Zechariah is told that his wife is going to bear to him a son, and that son will be named John, whom we know as John the Baptist. John then will prepare the way of the Lord, says the angel. After this, then, the angel makes a second appearance, of course, to, to Mary. And Mary is also told that, that she's going to have a miracle baby, not because she's too old or, or barren to have a baby, but because she's a, a virgin. She's never been with a man. So this child will be conceived by the Holy Spirit, and the, and the child will, will reign in this unending kingdom, and she's to call his name Jesus. So after these two appearances from the angels, Mary then goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who by now is, is six months pregnant with John. And the two of them compare the stories of their miracle babies, you know, how uh, you know, pregnant women tend to talk and compare situations. Maybe they talked about their fears and excitements, their nerves. Uh, they may have even talked about their body changes. The gospel writers don't record that, but we can imagine all of those things as they compare their, their upcoming uh, birth of their children. But the overall mood for the both of them is, is one of of joy, that they're ready for these children to come. So Mary pours out this, this long poem about the glory of God in saving and caring for a humble people. And Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, gives this long prophecy about, about how the Lord will forgive sin and guide our feet in the way of peace. So Mary then, this young girl essentially, stays with Elizabeth and Zechariah for three months until the time that John is born. And at that point, she returns home to be near Joseph again for the rest of her pregnancy. That's the background. At this point in the narrative, that's where Matthew begins. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
And we're told here in Matthew that at this point, Mary is, in verse 18, found to be with child. You notice that? She's found to be with child. Not that she is announced to be with child. She's found, discovered to be with child. So we know that Mary heard the announcement from the angel about Jesus. The cousin Elizabeth was told by angel announcement about these things, but we do not know whether Joseph heard any official announcement by this point or not. I mean, perhaps Mary told him about this coming child and he just didn't know what to make of it or didn't know how to process it. But it's also entirely possible at this point in the narrative that Mary did not tell Joseph about this. At least not at first. It is possible that Mary was just too scared to tell him. I mean, what's he going to think, after all? It's not a common thing to get visits from angels about miraculous children. Is he going to believe me? Is he going to leave me? At any rate, whether she told him or not, Mary spent the first three months of her pregnancy with Elizabeth, and now she's here, back home near Joseph, and she is found to be with child. That is, there is evidence. In other words, it's likely that her belly was showing. And they are not married yet. Joseph's smart enough to know that this is a problem. Because Joseph and Mary at this point are not married. They're just betrothed, says the text. That's a different word than, than some of us are used to. We may already know what this is. But to betrothal is a relationship that is different for us than both of our concepts of marriage and of engagement, actually. It's somewhere kind of in between. So betrothal has more commitment than engagement does in our culture. A betrothal culturally considered, you were legally bound in marriage by that point if you were betrothed. But yet it's less union than marriage is. It's not yet married. That is the main difference is there was no sexual contact yet. We're told it a couple of times in the narrative at the beginning that, that this was before they came together, which we know what that means. And at the end, in verse 25, we're told that Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son. So Joseph knows that this child that's now showing in his betrothed woman's belly isn't his kid. There's not even a question in his mind which means a couple of things. That means this pregnancy was not just about to be a public scandal, although it would also be that. It probably also felt very much like a personal betrayal to find your betrothed one with child. 
So what are we supposed to do now? You know, we don't know all or even most of what goes on in Joseph's mind. I want to be careful not to go uh, too far with those things. But we do know that very soon Joseph decides to divorce her. Because they're betrothed, they betrothed. They can't just, you know, end the relationship. A little Dear John letter, a short little break. There's a whole legal process to this. And the reason why he decides to divorce her is not because he's hurt or upset or even angry, although he might have also been any or all of those things. Nor is his decision because he's going to pay her back for what she surely did. We're told he decides to do this because he is a just man, because he's a righteous man. So, much earlier in the Bible, Back in the Old Testament, the law of God through Moses, where this is recorded in Deuteronomy, does allow for, for rare occasions of divorce. And those occasions for divorce in the scripture are never a happy thing, but it is sometimes the right or just thing. And divorce in the scripture, in the Old Testament, is permissible on only one condition, which you may already know. That condition is in the case of sexual unfaithfulness. That the scripture takes that union so seriously, that this sort of sin is so serious, that it would have such serious consequences as to break up the marriage. So now we have this pregnant woman who's betrothed but not yet married, and there's clearly, clearly, right, a case of unfaithfulness, at least as far as Joseph can tell. So he resolves to divorce her, not with a big public spectacle so that he can defend his own honor and his own name. He decides to divorce her quietly, the text says, to spare her the shame And before I move on, let me just say as an aside, not every part of the Christmas scene is happy. Not everything around Christmas is merry and tidings of comfort and joy. This experience was surely, surely heart-breaking. At this point, it would have been sinking, sad expectations just shattered on the floor to feel abandoned by one's own future wife, to feel rejected by her, lied to by her. At any rate, that's where we are until one night, Joseph goes to sleep. And in his dream, he's visited by an angel of the Lord in a, in a dream. And the angel says, Hold on, Joe. I got words for you now. Your turn 
I have some news for you. There is no infidelity here with Mary. Because this child does not come from another man. The child's conceived by the Holy Spirit. So Joe, there's no grounds for divorce. In fact, I don't want you to be afraid to stay with her. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And so I'm sure that was a bit of a relief for him, at least in some ways, although scary in others. But before, before the angel ends and, and the dream stops and, and Joseph wakes up, the angel gives Joseph one other piece of info about this child. The angel gives Joseph a name. Joseph, you're to name this child not Joe Jr., you know, not something classic like David or, or Moses or Judah, not Frank. You know, boy, that would change our Christmas songs if, if uh, you know, a child's name is going to be Frank. Different culture, different context. You shall call his name Jesus. Now, we've talked in the past couple of weeks about the titles of Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham, and the Christ. Now we get a name for this child. Gabriel had told Mary that very same name earlier, but now Joseph not only gets the name, but he is told the reason for that name. It's not as if the angel Gabriel was flipping through a book going, this is going to have a good ring to it. Okay, so now we hear for the first time in Matthew the reason. Let me read now our, our central verse again, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For, here's the reason, you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. If you're the kind of person that writes in your Bible and you're reading out of your own Bible, uh, this would be a good section to underline. Because we hear now for the first time in Matthew in this tiny little phrase, the mission of this child Jesus. We hear the reason he was born to us, that he will save his people from their sins. Now, for us here and the rest of our time, we want to understand this message of the angel about the name Jesus. So I want us to really zoom in here and unpack these phrases one piece at a time, and that will carry us to the end. Let's look now more at this uh, phrase, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Let's look at the first part of that. For he will save. What does that mean? For he will save. Well, first of all, that is what the name of Jesus literally means. Mostly. Mostly. Mostly means he will save. There's a language issue at play here, and I know language uh, pieces get a little finicky sometimes. I'll do my best to explain, and if I lose you somewhere, I hope I can pick you back up in just a moment. Let me try. 
So we know the names of, of, of this family in English as Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. That's not news to us. If we were, <clears throat> excuse me, if we were Spanish speakers, though, we would call them by different names. Their translation of names would be Jose, Maria, and Jesus. If we were Greek speakers, which is what the New Testament is written in, the names of these three were Yosef, Maria, and Jesus. So even though Jesus, Jesus, and Jesus sound a little different, those are all the same name. Following so far? Okay. So the Greek version even, which is what the text here is written in, is a version of an even older language of a Hebrew name, which in the Old Testament is translated Joshua. This name, Jesus, is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Yehoshua, which means Yahweh saves. Yahweh, the Lord, saves. So it's very common for Hebrew origin names to say things about the Lord. So Isaiah means Yah, or the Lord, Yah, say, Yah delivers. Jeremiah means something like the Lord raises up. Zechariah means the Lord remembers. Yehoshua, or, or Jesus, means the Lord saves. And the name Jesus is not entirely unique to Jesus Christ. There are other people, even in the Bible, who are also named Jesus, uh, just like there are other women named Mary, there are other uh, men named John, and so on. What's unique, though, about this name, Jesus, as it's applied to this child, is the name means the Lord saves. But the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus, not because the Lord saves. You shall call his name Jesus because he shall save. Because he, the child, will save. In other words, all this technical language stuff, this child, before he's even born, is equated with Lord God Almighty to do the very work of the Lord. Which means that God the Father and God the Son are working here in tandem to save. We know this already, you know, classic, uh, we could go lots of places in the Bible, but, uh, you know, John 3, 16, probably uh, some of you cite this off the top of your head, listen for the way the Father and the Son are working to save. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Here again, we hear the, the purpose of the sending of Jesus, that the world might be saved. Now, the angel doesn't tell us how Jesus will save. 
He doesn't tell us yet about the work of of the cross, how Jesus will become a substitute for sin and, and take the wrath of hell even in our place. We don't hear about that yet, but what we do know, what we do hear, is that he will save. And this will be a very work of God. That's the first part of the phrase. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save. Let's look at the next section. He will save his people. For he will save his people. Notice here, it does not say that Jesus will save all people. It says he will save his people. And some people might say to this, wait, wait a minute, preacher. Didn't you just say, didn't the Bible just say that Jesus came to save the world? Yes. That's what the Bible says, that the scope of his salvation is going to wrap around the entire globe. That's true. But the Bible does not say that every person in the world will be saved. In fact, if we were to keep reading in John 3.16 to read the very next verse in John, the very next verse says, if you do not believe in Jesus, you're not saved, but you are condemned already and judgment will come. There are ones who will forever remain in their sin. Ones who do not come to Jesus and who are not saved. And that's a sobering thing for us. But for his own people, the announcement here is for his own people, Jesus will save. Not might save, not is willing to save, not just I'm open to save, will save his people. His people then are not just Jews, that is, people who are, you know, the context of folks based on the parents they have. His people are all believers, those who are based upon the faith that they have. So if you have put faith in Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, believe in Jesus, you are are one of his people. And Jesus will save you. The scripture says this in many various ways, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter, a nice, tidy way. Uh, Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, uh, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Does that sound too easy? If you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. It is, at least in some sense, not more complex than that. It's truly this easy. That's why scripture calls salvation a gift. 
that salvation, which is based on faith, even the faith is a gift of God, not of works so that no one may boast. That's what makes us his people, is his willingness to give us the gift of faith. So listen, if you ever doubt that you are one of his people, do not waste your time trying to prove it. Do not waste your days by fretting and worrying over it. Just put your faith in him. Say to him, I trust you. And if that is true of you, you are his people, and he will save you. Let's look at the last part of this section. This will carry us to the end. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. From their sins. So here we learn what Jesus mainly saves us out of. So if we were to keep reading in Matthew or any of the Gospels, really, there are lots of things we would see Jesus save people out of. He saves folks out of stormy waves of literal seas. He saves people from lifelong blood diseases. There's even an aspect in which he'll, he'll save from war and death and tribulation of the end of the age. He talks about all of these things. Jesus can rescue from these things and often does, but that's not his main mission. That's not the reason why he was born. Jesus did not mainly come to save us from all suffering. Not yet. Not to save us from all struggle, from all strain, from all stress, from all sorrow, from all scarcity, from all of society. Jesus came to save his people from their sin. And if we look very carefully at this, we'll notice that he says he will specifically save his people from their sin. That is... He does not save us from other people's sin and the impact upon us. He saves us from our own sin. The problem that we really need to be saved from is not out there. It's in here. Jesus came to save us from ourselves. And if we're honest, I think we know in our hearts that that really is our greatest need. That I need to be saved from myself. You know, because in my greater moments of clarity, I can actually see my sin. 
and the atrocious, atrocious effects it has upon me and on others. You see the effects of our bickering, of our envy, of our unholy judgments, of our lies, how we daily put our own interests before the interests of others, how we set ourselves at war with other people, and especially at war with God. I could go on, but I'm sure I don't need to because you know your heart. A believer in Jesus, then, is a lot like Peter. You remember the scene where he's walking on the water? Somehow he steps out of the boat, he he walks on the water for a moment, and, and then suddenly he realizes what's happening and begins to sink, and he just blurts out a cry out to Jesus, Lord, save me. We're like that, except that we are not just sinking in wind and waves. We find ourselves sinking into cesspools of our own wickedness. Where the reaches of the very dark deep are coming up to entangle us with the cords of death. And Jesus reaches out into that moment, pulls out his hand, and takes hold of his people to save us from our sin. We need to see. We need to see that this is not just a side piece of Jesus' ministry. This is not just something he's going to get to if he has the time before he gets to the cross. This is his very name. Jesus, the Lord, saves. So every time, every time you take his name upon your lips, you are speaking again the saving word that he is sure to do. So now, ye need not fear the grave. Peace, peace. Jesus Christ was born to save. Would you pray with me? Ah, Lord, we trust that what you say and what you do is true, that nothing is uncertain to you and you will accomplish every one of your purposes. That is, when you mean to save, you will do it. Help us to believe you, to find this sure salvation as a source of hope for us, a source of love and joy for us, and that we would glory in you for all that you do and for all that you are. Thank you for saving us. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.